Hello and welcome back to Shoes from Sontap, the podcast where we talk about what's going on in the world of pensions. Today's episode is the third in a series on risk transfer. In episode one, Shoesmith's partner Susie Burrell spoke to Adam Davis of K3 Advisory and Becky Wood of Vedette about preparing for buyout and buy-in. In episode two, they caught up again to have a chat about the latest stages of a risk transfer exercise, in particular the post-benefit specification work, approaching insurers and then the general approach to wind-up. Today, we're talking about alternatives to buyout, in particular transferring DB liabilities to a DB master trust. I'm joined by David Thompson, a partner in Milton Keynes and the head of the Shoesmiths Pensions team, and by another of our partners, Paul Carney, who is based in our Manchester office. Both David and Paul have recently helped clients through that transfer process, so we're here today to pick their brains. David, Paul, welcome. Hello. Hello. Now, David, Paul, I know the reasons behind the transfer to the relevant DB Master Trust were slightly different in both of your cases. Paul, your client had an obligation to provide DB benefits to a particular group of members and having enrolled them into one DB Master Trust to provide those benefits, it decided uh, that it would be more cost effective to provide them through a different DB Master Trust. So it transferred those benefits on after a short period of time. Mm-hmm. Whereas David, your case uh, was a transfer of historic DB liabilities from a hybrid scheme, uh, and that was in anticipation of a scheme wind-up. So for you, it was more of an end game solution. David, can you explain a bit about why the employer in your case chose to transfer its DB pension liabilities to a master trust instead of, for instance, targeting buyout? Yes. Well, uh, as in many cases like this, the main advantage was one of cost, actually. The scheme employer is targeting buyout eventually, but the funding position isn't quite there yet. And the employer wanted to reduce the costs associated with the scheme in the meantime. And also the management time involved in running the scheme. The employer does, of course, still have to pay contributions into the master trust. So there is no significant saving there in terms of funding costs. But it will benefit from economies of scale in terms of advisor fees within the master trust. Also administration costs and all of the other expenses involved in running a scheme. It also removes the need for the scheme to have a trustee board as the master trust has its own trustees. So there is a time cost saving for those trustees who work for the scheme employer and are fully employed in the business. The other significant advantage of the master trust relates to governance and planning. On transfer, the master trust became responsible for the scheme's governance, which given that the schemes are operated by professional organisations, provides some reasonable assurance as to the quality of that governance. The Master Trust will also help the employer to achieve its end game of buyout, which might be achieved sooner than would otherwise perhaps have been the case as a result of those cost savings made on the transfer. Thanks, David. And Paul, can you tell us a little bit about what that transfer process looks like? Uh, yeah, I can certainly try. It's, I think it's worth noting that the, the basic structure of the transfer process is going to look pretty much the same whether you've got a case like David's or a case like the one um, I'm going to talk about. It's probably also worth noting that as an industry, I think it's safe to say uh, we're much more familiar with the process of transferring to a master trust in a defined contribution, a DC context. And that process is a very well-trodden path at this stage and there's a whole regulatory regime built around defined contribution money purchase master trusts they have to meet certain authorization criteria to operate in the first place 
and they are subject to a supervision regime to help maintain minimum level standards. And to that extent, you could say that they come with a sort of minimum quality guarantee. Defined benefit master trusts are not subject to an equivalent regime, so there's no regulatory guarantee of quality. Schemes can, however, provide quality-based information voluntarily through a self-certification process with the PLSA, which the schemes in both mine and David's cases did. Um, because there are no minimum standards, though, employees do have to do a bit more research to make sure that the scheme that they select is the right one for them and for the members that they are going to put in there. Um, the transfer process itself then isn't subject to any particular requirements. It's just a bulk transfer in accordance with the applicable legislation, which are the preservation regulations. And broadly, that can requires a number of things. Uh, the first is that the sponsoring employer um, to be adhered as a new employer uh, needs to have its own section of the master trust established and that section will be formally separated or segregated as we'd say in the documentation from all the other sections in there to make sure that the scheme's assets and liabilities remain separate from the rest of the schemes transferred into the master trust because you've got to remember that there isn't just one employer there there's a, a number of employees and they aren't uh, connected um, the new section will be subject to the general trust provisions and rules of the master trust, but you can amend the section rules to provide the right benefits and incorporate any provisions that need to move across. And upon creation of the new section, you've got two or more employees of the sponsoring employer who need to be admitted into pensionable service for a short period to make sure that the sponsoring employer is also a statutory employer. And then members can be transferred into the new section on a bulk basis. So does that sound familiar to you, David? It does indeed, Paul, yeah. Uh, as you say, the newly created section is subject to the Master Trust rules and any specific provisions that need, for whatever reason, to be saved on transfer. So in the case I worked on, uh, as well as the accrued benefit structure and member options, we also retained the scheme's transfer-in rule to ensure that the balance of powers remained broadly the same in the Master Trust as it had been in the transferring scheme. Other examples here might include uh, the winding up provisions or the employer contribution rule. We did, of course, have to negotiate some points with the Master Trust and its legal advisors. The trustees of the Master Trust have, have their own separate legal advisors, as you would expect. But the trustees had very little involvement in that negotiation process. They only really wanted to become involved if a material point came up as part of the discussions. From the Master Trust side, the whole project was really driven by the commercial provider. We're making it all sound very straightforward, but as you'll know from your project, Paul, it's not necessarily as straightforward as in practice as it is on paper. Uh, yes, absolutely right. Um, a, a lot of detail gets hidden in this, isn't it? I had the benefit of the transferring scheme being relatively young, in defined benefit terms at least, so I didn't have to deal with some of the issues that we often face when we're dealing with more historic schemes, more mature schemes that have been amended and merged over time. I know the scheme in your case, David, was much more historic, so I can easily imagine that you came across a few very tricky issues along the way. Yes, uh, indeed. And uh, there are three in particular, I think, are interesting, uh, either because they provided a learning point or 
demonstrated the flexibility that can be achieved in the negotiation process. Firstly, we, we identified a number of benefit issues when we were reviewing the benefit specification, which is very common, of course, in defined benefit risk transfer exercises. But it meant that the scheme trustees couldn't necessarily provide the warranties that were required by the transfer deed. Now, the transfer deed is the document which legally implements the transfer from the scheme into the master trust. And within that, a warranty is essentially a contractual promise. And because of these historic benefit issues, the trustees couldn't promise, for example, that the scheme had always been administered in accordance with its rules or overriding legislation, mm. because clearly in some respects it hadn't been. Yeah. That meant that the trustees had to make a large number of disclosures against the warranties within the transfer deed, or in other words, when they gave those promises, they had to make certain provisos to them, certain exceptions. The second point is that the transfer was completed at a time when most schemes, including this one, were, and still are in fact, grappling with the impact of GMP equalisation. The trustees of the scheme wanted to retain the liability for making certain top-up payments for GMP equalisation in respect to former members of the scheme who transferred out, in some cases, a number of years ago. This is because they had already identified and calculated the necessary top-up payments and understandably wanted to try and settle those liabilities themselves rather than passing them across to the master trust where they may not have been dealt with for a, a period of time. So we drafted the transfer deed to accommodate that by allowing for the retention of this small group of liabilities for a certain period. So we drafted the transfer deed to allow for the retention of these liabilities for a certain period. If the liabilities are not settled within that period, then they will automatically transfer to the master trust at that point to allow the, the old scheme to be wound up. And actually, the master trust was happy to accommodate this. Um, it took a little bit of drafting, but uh, reasonably straightforward. The third point was that we implemented um, a defined contribution switchback. Uh, in other words, to make sure that members, when they reach the point of retirement, could use their DC pots and bring them back into the master trust to apply them towards their pension commencement lump sum on retirement. As Kim mentioned at the start, the, the scheme had been a hybrid scheme and its rules allowed for members' pension commencement lump sum to be funded from their, their DC pots. In this case, those DC pots had already been transferred, in fact, to a different master trust, a DC master trust. It had the same provider, so we were in a position to set up uh, essentially an informal arrangement with the terms recorded in a memo of understanding between all the parties to enable that DC pot to be transferred from the DC Master Trust into the DB Master Trust at the point of retirement. That uh, had proved to be a big issue for the transferring trustees. They wouldn't have gone ahead with the Master Trust transfer without that reassurance because they knew it was an important option for their members. 
Well, it certainly sounds like there was a lot of work involved for both of you. Indeed, Paul, you were working with Craig Thomas, who is actually a tax lawyer here at Shoesmith, uh, but was a pensions lawyer in former life. And David, you were working uh, with Hannah Farley, another one of our brilliant pensions lawyers here at Shoesmith, and I'm sure others along the way. So these were, you know, really busy projects with lots of moving parts. And David, you mentioned earlier some learning points. I'd like to cut back to that, if you don't mind. Um Having completed two quite different, but in a lot of ways, similar projects, I'm curious to know what you both learned. So I'm going to ask you both what your key lessons were. Paul, let's start with you. Thank you. Um, Well, as I mentioned earlier, the outcome for the employer, as was ultimately for the members, in many ways, that will be dependent on the choice of the master trust provider. Uh, In my case, the employer had set up the scheme with one defined benefit master trust provider. And after a very short period, it decided it wasn't happy with that choice, so much so that it felt that transferring the liabilities to another master trust was the right choice. And cost was an element um, in that decision. That's not to say that the original master trust was a bad scheme. It just wasn't suited to the employer's needs. And for this particular employer, it felt that it was an expensive choice. So my key lesson for the employers is to focus time and resource on the due diligence phase. And that's the phase for the scheme to check out that that scheme really is delivering for the right amount of money. At that stage, therefore, you should take advice, not just when it comes to negotiating the transfer documents, you should be taking advice Firstly, to help ensure that a particular master trust will meet your requirements now and in the future. And then secondly, to save yourself a lot of cost and headaches along the way. Thanks, Paul. And a very good point. David, how about you? I think in my case, the big lesson learned was to prepare your benefit specification early on in the project. Just in the same way that you would do if the scheme were moving towards a buy-in or buy-out contract. It's actually a good juncture to uh, compare the administrative practice of the scheme with the rules to try and iron out any issues with the benefit structure. In the case I worked on, there were actually three sets of historic rules that needed to be considered since the the older scheme rules still govern the benefits of members who had left pensionable service when those old rules were in force. Unsurprisingly, the benefits had changed over the years. I think in particular, things to look out for would be changes to pension increases, revaluation rates, and possibly the pension accrual rate itself. So by the time you get to the Master Trust project, you have a number of different subcategories of members according to which rules they are governed by, which can be a bit messy. So we spent a good deal of time during this project actually drafting and reviewing the benefit specification to make sure that at the point of transfer, it fully reflected that historical structure. So the overall message I'm getting then is the earlier, the better when it comes to planning and seeking advice on one of these projects. Would you agree? Yeah, absolutely. As is is very often the case in, in this discipline. Yes. Brilliant. Well, I think that's just about all we've got time for today. But David, Paul, thank you so much for taking us through your cases. They were really interesting. And I think some really uh, useful insights came out of those. Well, that's all. Thank you very much. Thank you. Goodbye. Now, remember, if you want to find out more about the Shoesmiths Pensions Team or the work that we do, please visit us at www.shoesmiths.com forward slash expertise forward slash services forward slash pensions. And if you've got any questions for us, please send them to pensionspsl at shoesmiths.com.